Good evening. This is Cinema 60. What did you do to the general? He is flying. Forget it, sweetheart. I can't stand older men. I was married to one once. Spent all my nights playing dominoes. You know what I mean? D-U-L Doe. Well, tell me, how do I grab you? You're just the right age, Zaki. You keep that up, and I'm gonna be a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I kissed you last night, something went bomb. Yeah. I heard it. What do we do now? We're adults, aren't we? So let's act like a couple of kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm planning on spending the night here. Want to get together later? You tell me where and when. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. So uh, not too long ago, we did a uh, love-in, an exclusive mini-episode for our Patreon subscribers. Wow. Where can people find our Patreon? Uh, www.patreon.com, probably. That was a terrible promotion. (laughs) (laughs) It's patreon.com slash cinema60podcast. Or if you can't remember that, you go to cinema60.com and you will find a link to it on the front page. Well, anyway, not so long ago, we did a love-in on Pillow Talk, which is a Doris Day Rock Hudson movie that both Jenna and I really, really love. And we, we did it in preparation to talk about Doris Day's 60s movies. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Well, we're going to talk about half of her 60s movies. We're going to talk about all of her movies that sort of follow the pillow talk formula, which is basically Doris Day is horny but doesn't want to give it up without being married first. (laughs) I mean, she was pretty prolific in the 60s considering she was over the hill as far as Hollywood starlets go. She was 40, right? In, in 1959, even in, with Pillow Talk, she was already pushing it. And that kind of gave her a second wind because of, of how uh, well-received that comedy was. Yeah, that, it was huge. And all of these movies that we watched, they were only made because Pillow Talk was incredibly popular. But each movie was a, was a little bit less successful than the last, uh, as as we'll see as we progress. And Pillow Talk, if you haven't seen it, I know that you know that's not our it's not our decade, but it is such a great, charming movie. It is so worth watching, even if you are not a rom com person. It really has just like such a great chemistry between the the whole cast, which is Doris Day, Rock Hudson, and Tony Randall. And uh, visually really great looking, just so pop color, 1960s, kind of that real mid-century breezy. And then it's like all innuendo. It's just innuendo for an hour and a half. It's just such a perfect little movie. And then we, we talk about it on the love end, so you can go ahead and pay for the Patreon and <laughs> listen to us gush about it there. But you got to watch it. And in this episode, we get uh, two more films with the same trio, Day, Hudson, and Randall, neither of which are as good as Pillow Talk, but I guess we'll get into that as well. 
In fact, nothing that we watched for this episode <laughs> no. comes close to being as good as Pillow Talk. But I also had fun watching them. There's something really charming about Doris Day. She's really easy to watch. Her movies are so silly and fun. And that really distinct brand of 60s Hollywood raunchiness that makes them really appealing, even when they're not particularly good movies. And this is such her wheelhouse, these kind of comedies, too, because versus, let's say, The Ballad of Josie that we watched for <laughs> our Eyeliner Westerns episode, which was a great episode. You can go ahead and find that, too, on Cinema60.com. I'm only going to do ads today. And maybe that's because the first movie that we're going to talk about is Lover Come Back, 1961. I try to sleep, but the counting of sheep goes on and on. Without your kiss, I just cannot exist from the night till dawn. Lover, 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 come back. Directed by Delbert Mann. This is the second of this unofficial Day Hudson Randall trilogy, just fully cashing in on the success of Pillow Talk, which was, again, 1959. And the plot is that Rock Hudson plays a guy named Jerry Webster, who's a New York ad man, and he's the sort of dude that would put Roger Sterling to shame. Uh, his business style is basically luring in clients by plying them with hard liquor and hot women. And then he gets the account because that's all it takes. You just get the guy drunk and then he says, great, love it. Which was the plot of Mad Men. Doris Day plays Carol Templeton. And she's like the total opposite of that. She's like the overachiever and she plays by the rules and she puts in all the hard work. And uh, she absolutely hates Jerry because he keeps stealing all of her business. Like after she, you know, comes up with these great campaigns and does their whole pitches. And then this dude just swoops in you know, with the liquor and the and the business and, uh, you know, steals hers. So after witnessing his handiwork firsthand, where a client that she was, who was like about to sign a contract with her, ends up flopping at the last minute because he gets so drunk that he decides that Jerry is the way to go. And so uh, Carol wants to report him to the ad council for being a total creep. And she recruits one of the, the showgirl women that he tricks into whining and dining these men because he's always like promising them something. He's like, Oh, you got to do this for me. Like, you know, this guy will put you in his campaign. And of course nothing ever happens and he, he gets the money and yada, yada. So rock catches on and he intervenes with the showgirl and he tells her, no, 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 you act, you're going to be the face of VIP, which is a, a fake product that he made up just on the spot to get him out of a jam. And so the rest of the film is just about him going to like a scientist to try and come up with the, some sort of miracle product while he's shooting all these promotions for VIP with the showgirl to prove to her that it's a real thing, but they never say exactly what the product is, which then stirs up a bunch of confusion and like generates a bunch of buzz and people are get, get really excited about this product. And uh, all the while, nobody actually knows what it is, including the guy that invented it. And our two main characters finally meet like an hour into this movie. Uh, it takes for Doris and Rock to finally meet each other when um, Carol tracks down this lab in an attempt to figure out what VIP actually is. And she walks in on Jerry at the lab, mistakes him for the inventor. 
uh, though he technically is, but she, she thinks he's, a, you know, the scientist and he pretends to be this sort of dorky scientist just so he can buy himself more time, which is going to sound very familiar to anyone who watched Pillow Talk. And play into gay stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so Carol, in turn, she's like whining him and dining him like a client because she wants she's just desperate to steal this business from Jerry because she hates Jerry so much. Uh, and he keeps uh, worming his way out of trouble. And so she's just ready to to play the game the way that he plays the game. So she keeps taking, uh, you know, this who she thinks the scientist is out on the town. And she's like kind of like trying to seduce him from a business standpoint. And then, of course, later they both fall in love. And then the whole thing unravels. I have really mixed feelings about this movie. Like, it's fun. I liked it. Tony Randall is so good in this movie. Tony Randall. Oh, my God. He is so good in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's no secret that he's the secret ingredient in all three of these Hudson Day movies that really make them work. Whenever he's on screen, he's the most fun thing to watch in any of these movies. But this is the movie where he really stands out and ends up being a, a far more entertaining character than either of the leads. He's the president of Jerry's ad company, and uh, it's actually his fault that this whole VIP mess happens because he's uh, he decide he well he's he's seeing a therapist. There's <laughs> there's certain themes that run through all of these movies that are really kind of interesting and worth talking about, and I hope we can draw some conclusions. But therapy is really consistent. Like in every single one of these movies, somebody is seeing a therapist. And, you know, we're, we're judgmental of them because they're seeing a therapist. And the therapists are always quacks. And was that a part of Pillow Talk even, the whole being in therapy thing? Because maybe that trope began with this movie, but it just carried on throughout all of them. But uh, anyway, Tony Randall is, uh, wants to take charge of his life, of his business, uh, his, his daddy's business that he inherited so he sees these vip ads that jerry has filmed with the showgirl for a fake product and he says oh well let's run them uh, even though they were never intended to be run on tv so it's all his fault um and that's the role that he plays in this he's the insecure president who uh is just trying to save his business even though he's completely incompetent and you know relies on jerry for everything he, he wants to pretend that he's actually the brains behind the operation and he's really funny. Yeah, he does all the heavy lifting in this. His like neurotic humor and his vocal cracks. Like he's the absolute joy of this movie. But that's my problem with Lover Come Back is that it, it feels like they took all of the wrong lessons from the success of Pillow Talk and like doubled down on the gender norms instead of the chemistry and the romance. Like Doris Day is so dumbed down in this. It's like a bit of a bummer. Like, I think one of the things that made Pillow Talk so engaging is that she was like a smart and competent person. And, you know, the that, that she was tricked was like more understandable. Whereas in this one, like there's just a lot. You have to do a lot of suspending your disbelief that she would be this dopey to like not understand how things work. Like there's a lot of her basically like rushing around and then getting really, really frustrated that, you know, like things just don't happen. And and like, I don't know. It's like if she's really an ad executive, she'd be a little more savvy. I think that's the suspension of disbelief that all of these movies want you to have. It's like all of these impossible scenarios. You just have to accept it and accept that these characters who otherwise seem really 
intelligent and competent are just complete idiots in, in order for the plots to work. I don't know, but Pillow Talk had was less stupid somehow. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I'm trying to put my finger on what it was. And it, it just, I don't know. It just might have been the that, or maybe, I don't know. Is it like maybe the thing that was kind of bumming me out was that the, the sex humor from Pillow Talk is a lot smarter than it is here. Like now it's like, kind of like, from silly innuendo it's like kind of body sex jokes about like bimbos and players and prudes it's like a little bit more on the nose and it sometimes it's funny and sometimes i was kind of just bored by it yeah it just repeats the beats of pillow talk too much is is the main problem i thought that's why it, it seemed less funny it takes 45 minutes for our leads to even speak to each other that's not cashing in on chemistry it's too much plot. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But let's get down to what we're really here for. The sex and Doris Day's willingness to engage in it, but having the, the plot mechanisms of the film prevent it from happening. So as you said before, Jerry posing as this uh, Dr. Tyler pretends to be this emasculated, nerdy guy. I mean... It's pretty ridiculous to see Rock Hudson playing this naive guy who, you know, has no experience with the ladies or, or sex. See, that that's a fantasy, though, that I understand, because that's what every woman wants the nerdy guy to look like, Rock Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> like, I understood that much. But anyway, he's telling Carol that, uh, oh, well, Jerry, he, of course, is Jerry, but he, at playing... Tyler, he's saying, oh, Jerry promised to show me the town, to show me things I'd never seen before, you know, strip shows and all the women, you know, show him all the exotic pleasures of city life. And uh, and Carol says, well, I can do that for you. So she takes him to a strip show and tries to, you know, break his innocence down. And uh, I mean, that's straight out of pillow talk, of course. Here's Rock Hudson, you know, exhibiting these gay stereotypes that he you know he has no experience with women and is a complete innocent and and here comes doris day to be the gay breaker and uh and get him into bed so he plays that that same strategy of you know getting her to seduce him and it, it plays out much the same way you know you've got the scene in the last act of the movie where she's got jerry in her apartment and uh is ready, you know, is in her negligee, has had a drink, even though she can't handle alcohol at all, and is ready to go in and teach him a thing or two about sex and make him no longer an innocent. But then, uh, you know, the plot starts to unravel, and that's the point. That's the exact point where she finds out, oh, this guy is not Dr. Tyler. And then that's when her revenge plot kicks in. And so... These movies are not so much that Doris Day is is so virginal and uh, you know she doesn't want to have sex. It's that Hollywood is is the one that's preventing her from actually having sex outside of marriage. She's willing to do it, but these plots are not allowing her to. Yeah, and they keep getting more and more overt about it. I mean, there's like straight up, and plus even her revenge is pretty, you know, borderline. What she ends up doing is. You know, when, when she gets seduced initially, when she starts to realize that she has a big crush on who she thinks is this Dr. Tyler, 
they're like on the beach and they like make out and they're gonna like go all the way and then so when she wants her revenge she she says let's go they're they're like in the bedroom and they're about to do it and she says wait no it'd be more romantic if we went to the beach and he's like really like we have to drive an hour two hours and she's like yeah that's that's let's do it and so they drive two hours she gets him out there in the dark he takes all his clothes off and then she just drives away (laughs) and leaves him alone to get picked up by another man to to help drive him back to the city so that's fun and the audience definitely gets an eyeful there yep good excuse to get rock and in very little clothing did you think though that there was something a little bit more malicious about this movie and its humor and the way that it treats sex, like there was something sort of antagonistic that I felt like Pillow Talk was never that. It was like a little more easygoing about. Well, one major difference is that in Pillow Talk, you get to hear the interior dialogue of both characters. So you get to hear their, you know, machinations and you get to hear her horniness and you get to, you know, you, you sort of understand the motivations of the characters a little bit and what they're thinking. Whereas in this movie, it's just pure, like, are they going to do it? No. It felt more rote and less intimate for that reason, I think. That might be it. I think you you might have nailed it there. We get the split screens, but we don't get the same kind of interior understanding of these characters. And it, and it kind of, that's kind of what lessens it. But it's still fun. Yeah, but there's also some dark humor running throughout, which I think it's actually the best part, like, when Tony Randall, as Pete Ramsey, the, the president of the company, uh, thinks that he's going to, his company's going to be ruined because of this whole VIP scandal. Because, of course, Carol is, uh, when she finds out about the scheme, goes back to the ad council and says, this time I've got him and I'm going to ruin his business because he's created an ad campaign for a product that doesn't exist. Anyway, that, that all gets resolved. But when Tony Randall thinks that he's going to lose everything, he's trying to convince underlings to uh, take responsibility for what happened and then commit suicide, <laughs> you know, in order to, to save his, uh, you know, his reputation and his business. And, and says, here, here, and Stein right here, and then take step out this window. I, I like that darkness. That was good when he's like, you won't sign, you won't jump. I'm surrounded by traitors. It's like, yeah, that's my kind of humor. And I think the sex in this is sort of taking a similar sort of darker, more more matter-of-fact approach. I mean, I got a real kick out of the reveal of VIP. It's definitely like kind of, that's, that's kind of dark in itself, what it ends up doing to everybody, even though the, the ending ending of this is like a little bit, it, it like gets, it gets too, it's like it goes so far into like a surreal weird druggy alcohol craziness kind of a place like they pretty much like invent well i don't know should i spoil it i'm not gonna spoil it yeah i think it's important because the lengths that they go to to have rock and doris have sex within the the confines of marriage is pretty incredible and all due to what vip ended up being which is this candy this small wafer candy that each one is is like equivalent to three martinis Right. <laughs> so like everyone like eats like 500 of them and then they all get like crazy ass drunk. And Tony Randall says my favorite quote of the whole film, which is I'm king of the elevator, <laughs> which was the best scene in the whole movie. Uh, but yeah, that the, they get so drunk out of their minds that they wake up in the same hotel room 
in the same bed naked and then they realize and they with a marriage license that they realize and then you know there's she she uh, is horrified and they're like well at least we got married and then she goes to annul the wedding and then several months later it turns out that she is pregnant and she's about to have the baby and he's been trying to get back with her and he doesn't realize that she was even pregnant and uh yeah it's totally like contrived but yeah like it's like a it's a weird thing where they're sort of sprinting towards this like sex drugs rock and roll <laughs> advertising craziness and then the only way that they can like tie this up is with like marriage you know like let's just like the and even the the movie is like making these jokes about like oh you know thank god that they they get remarried right before the baby's born or else it would have been like a bastard and we would have left it on the street corner and killed it you know what i mean like they don't say that but like it's just very much implied like this would have ruined everybody involved had it not been for the sanctity of marriage yeah but everyone involved in the making of this movie i think no is that. aware that that's kind of a joke yeah and you know it's it's played for comedy it's like Oh, you thought that we would show you Doris Day having a one-night stand? Then they, they pull the rug out from under you and say, fooled you. It's such an interesting, I don't know, maybe we should talk about a few more of these before I start getting into what I find so interesting about this is that these movies are capitalizing on the sexual liberation of the early 60s. You know, birth control was now available and, uh, you know, Women were sleeping around and Hollywood felt the need to address that. But, you know, whether it's because they they were afraid to have Doris just sleeping around or because they just thought it was funny to have it both ways, to have their cake and eat it, too. They always managed to have some way for her to be married before she has sex. Nobody in these movies has sex without. Well, nobody that we're supposed to like has sex without being married. That said, we're going to move on to That Touch of Mink from 1962. Also directed by Delbert Mann. And uh, this is, you know, basically another Doris Day, Rock Hudson, Tony Randall movie, except Doris Day is the only one of those stars who is actually you know, appearing in this one. We've got Cary Grant in the Rock Hudson role. He's this uh, you know, sophisticated businessman, you know, who is, uh, you know, so important and powerful that he will present to the United Nations and, uh, you know, just he's got this jet set lifestyle as, a, you know, in this country one day and another country the next. And Doris Day is an unemployed woman in, living in New York who Cary Grant, as Philip Shane, accidentally, uh, you know, splashes with mud. It's a rainy day and she's standing on the street corner and he, he covers her in mud and he feels bad about it and tells his assistant, oh, look, find this woman. I feel really bad about that. And of course, she's pissed off because she's covered in mud and, and the, the person who did it didn't even bother to stop and say they're sorry. But anyway, the, uh, his assistant, played by Gig Young, who's in the, basically in the Tony Randall role, the sidekick who is uh, most likely in love with 
the leading man and uh, is, is in therapy. But Gig Young is not a fraction of as funny as Tony Randall. He actually, the character kind of sucks in this movie. But uh, anyway, Gig Young is Roger, tracks down Kathy, Doris Day's character, and uh, brings her up to Philip Shane's office to uh, have him apologize to her. And it's sort of love at first sight. She goes from being absolutely furious to like being unable to give this guy a piece of her mind because he's so charming and handsome and rich and powerful and you know she's swept off her feet and Philip Shane is also you know so he takes her out on the town and they have some fun and at the end of a, of a glorious night he invites her to go to Bermuda with him he knows that she's not the kind of girl who would go to Bermuda with a fellow without being married to him but he asks anyway and she's you know, she's going to refuse. She, he says, think about it overnight, and I'll call you in the morning. But he doesn't call back. She calls him, and he says, oh, I took back my offer because I know you're not that kind of girl. And she says, no, you know, feeling insulted that he would rescind his offer. She says, no, I want to go to Bermuda with you. So it's a, you know, a sex farce where Doris keeps ending up in this hotel room with Cary Grant, and uh, they're about to have sex. And the, the first time she gets a rash because she's afraid of doing it. And uh, so th so they don't do it. And the second time she's too drunk, you know, she falls out a window. And so the uh, th their second attempt at coitus fails. And uh, there's a whole subplot with John Astin where Carol, Kathy, whatever her name is, Doris Day decides she is in love with Philip and wants to convince him to marry her. And there's a scheme where she goes out with this sleazy unemployment office guy played by John Astin. And she makes sure that Philip knows that she's going to a hotel with this guy so that he'll come and rescue her. And it's a whole lot of wackiness. And I don't know, this movie was bad. As much as I like Cary Grant, and I think he, he has moments where he's very charming in this movie. I don't think he was particularly well cast in this role. And Doris is, you know, really leaning into her 40-year-old virgin thing. Like, she's so afraid of sex. The whole movie revolves around how she's just afraid to do it. And uh, didn't really work for me at all. The comedy was lame and... Uh... Well, the reason why she's afraid of sex is kind of weird, too, because it, it seems to be... It's entirely because of social pressure. And there's this weird mix where she has, like, a friend who's, like, this proto-feminist basically and she's like all men are trickster assholes and they only want one thing and you know when she agrees to go on that trip this friend starts like you know crying and and you know she's like you're ruining yourself and and like so there's all of this weird societal pressure that she seems to just be completely crushed under and yet the fact that she's even chasing him to begin with is like so like I don't even know what to make of this movie either I mean it's like she basically like he smiles at her once and she throws her entire life away <laughs> you know what I mean like it's just it, it's sort of there's there's no chemistry Cary Grant I agree he is so wrongly cast in this movie I love Cary Grant and he just feels like there it feels like they wheeled out a robot of Cary Grant because he just feels like he's acting in a different decade it just does not there. The way that they talk does not work like she is so modern in comparison to him. 
and the way that he delivers his lines it was really like tripping me out like he he almost came across as sinister because of the way that he had these sort of robotic quippy deliveries of things that she just was not on that rhythm and it just made her seem like she was chasing this absolute like psychopath <laughs> well this movie is definitely supposed to be about a, a may december romance like she's supposed to be much younger than philip but because doris day is 40 they had to find a you know 60 plus year old to play philip and it just seems really bizarre to have such old people playing characters like this i mean well that's weird but it's not even that he's older it's just that he doesn't feel like he lives in the 60s <laughs> like he feels <laughs> like he came he like stepped out of a time warp i don't know he feels like kind of a james bondish 60s man like He's from a different era and he's just there to you know, sleep with a lot of women and uh, have no relationship responsibilities at all. I don't know. I think he did that fine. He's very restrained in this movie. And he I think some of his jokes work because he underplays them so much. I just think throwing these people who are 20 years older than they should be into these roles was the biggest mistake that this movie made. And once again, we've got uh, a lot of humor based on gay stereotypes and assumptions that a character who is not gay is gay. Gig Young as Roger is, is seeing a therapist. So this is another anti-therapy movie, but also obsessed with the idea of going to therapy. And he's just lying on the couch talking about his, uh, his boss's adventures and uh, his therapist is only half paying attention and you know walks out of the room at one point to play a, a stock tip that Roger has given him. And when he comes back, Roger's talking about the affair between Kathy and Philip from Kathy's perspective, saying, oh, I would jump into bed with Philip in a, you know, in a heartbeat. And the therapist assumes that he is in love with Philip or maybe even more that they're having just having an ongoing relationship. So that's a lot of hilariousness that isn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That isn't funny. I mean, this is definitely the horniest that we've had Doris Day, for sure. She's wearing, like, at one point when they go to Bermuda, she wears this, like, black outfit that is, like, way low cut, especially for this kind of movie. Mm. Oh, this is the movie with the big fashion show in the middle. Like, it just stops everything yes. for Doris Day to check out a bunch of models on the runway because uh, Philip is going to buy her a new wardrobe. Can I just say about that, I, I've always thought that these like sequences in older films like this where they have live models dressing and modeling clothing for our character was kind of weird like the idea that people used to just go to a store and then get like a fashion show and like people were paid to be models to stand around come out wear clothing to show some rich person and then they would buy it based on that I was like that is the strangest thing and it's so weird that that was a thing that doesn't happen anymore. I'm I'm so alienated from the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Yeah, uh huh. I just assume that still happens. But here's the thing: is that it does because of the internet. I I like said I I had this like no shit duh moment. Is that anytime you go clothes shopping online, it's always somebody wearing it. You know, like and you in, like in when someone isn't wearing it, it feels like it's hard to know if you even can buy it because it's hard to see how it fits. Uh, and even though you the model's always a size double zero and you probably doesn't fit your body anyhow <laughs> but like i i was like oh no we we do do this 
And I just had a weird, but it's like a weird, like, you know, kind of no shit, no duh moment for me. But anyhow, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole fashion show in the middle of this. And there's a special thanks to Bergdorf Goodman at the end. They had the best models, right? I mean, they had fancy clothing. So even though this was uh, you know, much of the same team that brought us Pillow Talk and Lover Come Back, you know, same screenwriters, uh, same director as Lover Come Back. This is a huge step down. It really just has to do with the chemistry of those stars. But also so much cynicism because it's like there's a line in the end where they're like, you can be an honest old maid or a, like a happy liar. And it's like, Jesus, like, <laughs> like all right, sure. It's weird to me where you, when you have these like it's like a romantic comedy that hates romance. Well, I mean, it's it's the early 60s. So romance has been replaced by sex. One night stands Drugs. by sex. Yeah. So people. Nobody if loves want... each other anymore. I mean, really what this is telling of is like just how stodgy the people writing these movies are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're, everybody involved is way too old to be making you know, sex comedies in an era where they don't understand how women can all of a sudden be saying, yeah, it's okay to have sex with anybody I want outside of marriage. And there's also just this pressure to get away from what is offered to people on TV, so which is a lot of family wholesomeness. The romance is all very innocent, and there's this push at the time to make these movies that offer up this kind of sex and dirtiness that people couldn't see on the on the small screen. So I think that's a lot of where the cynicism comes from. This is a product. We're trying to push this product. We're trying to sell movies. We're trying to sell movie tickets, and, and this is how we're going to do it, by making it a lot dirtier than what's on TV. Well, in a very strange move, the next movie, Move Over, Darling, 1963. This is directed by Michael Gordon. Who directed Pillow Talk. And it's a remake of My Favorite Wife from 1940, which, which actually stars Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. And it's actually, it's, it's sort of weirdly stodgier than the original film. And, and even this movie, it was initially meant to have been a remake uh, from 1962 by George Cukor, uh, which is called Something's Gotta Give. It starred Marilyn Monroe and Dean Martin and Sid Charisse. But then Marilyn was having all these health issues, mental health issues, and she died. And then everyone dropped out and things got shuffled. And uh, here we are. Move over, darling. <laughs> and the plot is that James Garner plays this dude named Nick Arden. And he goes to court to get his wife declared legally dead because she's been missing for like five years following a plane accident and the reason why he wants to get her declared dead is because he wants to get remarried to a new lady named Bianca who's played by Polly Bergen and her most neurotic here's your your psychiatry coming in again and uh, the same day that the judge grants both requests his original wife Ellen played by Doris Day 
arrives back to the States via a U.S. Navy submarine that has rescued her off of an island that she's been living on for the last five years. So she arrives home to find that not only do her two young children like not even recognize her, but when her mother-in-law informs her of where her husband Nick actually is, uh, which is on his honeymoon with another lady, she rushes to, to intervene and it's actually even even worse than that. It's like the same hotel that their honeymoon was at. <laughs> so she knows exactly where to go. So most of the movie is just Nick rushing between these two women. He doesn't know how to tell one about the other. He doesn't know what to do. He feels super guilty for the entire thing. That is until he finds out that Ellen actually wasn't alone on that desert island. She was, in fact, with a man named Stephen. And the two of them apparently jokingly called each other Adam and Eve for the last five years because there's all this like press about the fact that she got picked up by the Navy and rescued and all that. And uh, he immediately becomes burningly jealous, uh, especially because she's been laying it on thick about how could you marry another woman? Like, how dare you? I was only was gone for five years. So once he um, finds out that this dude is like this fit swimmer, Though, I, like, he's played by Chuck Connors, so I'm like, he's not particularly handsome, in my opinion, but whatever. He's not, he's not the... He's very fit, though. Yes, he's very fit. And he's not the nerdy loser that, that Ellen made him out to be, because that was part of, you know, she was like, well, I was, you know, I, yeah, sure, there was somebody there, but he was a total nerd. We, you know, he, he was like a, he loved birds, you know, she like trying to play it off like he was a, a loser, and instead he's actually this, like, you know, he, he finds him at the pool, and he's this sort of, like, womanizing you know, sporty guy. So, you know, the rest of the movie is just a screwball comedy, screwball and, and, uh, you know, everyone eventually finding out about everybody and, uh, and Doris Day going through a car wash in a convertible. Dude, talk about again, like weird, aggressive energy towards Doris Day for being a slut. <laughs> <laughs> like how dare she be on this like island with a man even though she couldn't have chosen anything and they like that that car wash sequence it really like it feels like a tar and feathering of her like the second that we learn that she boned another guy potentially like they we have to like shove her through this like car wash with the top down on the car like i don't know like this... they have to make her clean again yeah <laughs> it's so neutered though so here's the thing and we, we don't have to really talk about something's got to give, though I would eventually it's going to be fun when we can get to it because there is you can watch it on YouTube. The what was shot of what was going to be this initial remake with with Marilyn Monroe, it's way more forward. And I mean, like, it, it's like really about the fact that she ran away with a lover for five years and he only thought that she was like marooned and she was like, no, I went off and then and then I felt guilty and I came back and it was like. It, it plays off Dean Martin way more like, you know, in that kind of like Italiano, like, you know, uh, Commedia Italiano. He's like more like the cuckold in, in the situation. And it's like him and like Sid Charisse and like Marilyn. It's like he's surrounded by these powerful women and, uh, you know, and they're doing what they want to do. And he's sort of along for the ride. And there's only like a half hour of the movie that they got. They managed to shoot before everything was going off the, the rails anyhow. But that movie, and I haven't actually seen My Favorite Wife, I'll be honest, from 1940, but um, reading the, you know, the the plot description, it also sounds like way more forward than Move Over Darling, which is like, they just n like neuter all these women to keep all the male egos intact, and it really sucks the fun out of it. 
my favorite wife is I, I really like that movie. And this actually follows the plot of that fairly well. You know, Irene Dunn has been off on a desert island for five years. I think it's been a while. But this movie just adds a lot of sex farce where people are running from bedroom to bedroom, not having sex. That's that's really the main difference between the two movies. The only thing that survived from the Marilyn Monroe version, besides Marilyn Monroe's hair on Doris Day, is uh, Thelma Ritter plays the mother-in-law in both films. But uh, it's actually been a while since I've seen that footage from Something's Gotta Give. But that was going to be the first movie with a nude scene in it, right? The first Hollywood film? Uh, she, I mean, she's naked, but I don't think you get to see her nude. Well, anyway, Doris Day is, is fully clothed the entire time in this movie. She's also doing her best Marilyn Monroe impression in this whole movie. Is it, what Did you catch that? It was like very weird. Oh, other than the hair, I didn't really notice. It's just very breathy, very like, I, she didn't seem like herself until she's getting tarred and feathered. And then, and then when it's like, then when the slapstick comedy comes in, suddenly she's like kind of Doris Day again. But it was like a weird mix. I just thought it was uh, interesting to see Doris Day playing opposite a straight male actor. They seem to always... <laughs> play her against uh, gay men. And I think that's, you know, part of that is to make it easier to preserve her virginity. So you like Garner in this? <laughs> no, I, did, I don't like Garner. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, I, I don't like Garner in any of his leading man roles in the 60s. It's not until he becomes a TV star like Brett Maverick and Jim Rockford that I start to really like James Garner. But the biggest problem with this movie is that the comedy doesn't work, honestly. I think it could have been a lot better than it was, but you know, Polly Bergen is really irritating as Bianca. Like at no yeah. point do we want Nick to choose her. Like it would have been so much more interesting as a movie if they had actually made Bianca an interesting woman with with some appeal, and then we could you know actually care about Nick's dilemmas. Like, oh, I love both these women. It's clear right from the beginning that he should not be in love with Bianca, and it makes the whole setup really pretty dull but uh i i also like that uh i think this is the first movie uh we've watched for cinema 60 where don knotts appears i was really excited when he showed up to play the uh nerdy guy that doris day tries to pretend is adam like the guy that she spent uh five years on an island with because who could be less sexually appealing than don <laughs> knotts and uh, who would be least likely to force themselves on a, on a woman, even, you know, after five years of sexual frustration, Don not. So it's uh, that sequence is not nearly as funny as it should be. But I did love the idea of Don Knotts as opposed to Chuck Connors being there, her Adam on this island. But yeah, like a lot of the, the courtroom stuff is supposed to be hilarious. Edgar Buchanan as the judge, this uh you know, put upon judge who doesn't really understand any of this craziness that's going on with the like declaring my wife dead and annulling marriages and that stuff doesn't work at all. I got very little pleasure out of this movie, even though it seemed like it could have been okay. It just should have been sexier. At no point is there ever a real love triangle. 
and that's kind of the biggest like that just sucks all the the air out of it like you you're never like worried about him going back to bianca the second that doris day shows up again and you never really get the sense that like because she so hates what's his face uh steven that like even that's kind of and he's such a creep that's like eh whatever you know it's like there really is no there's no romance in this either and i'm like come on like play with that play it up well this movie does sort of violate the formula of the, of these other films that we've been talking about because doris day is married and she has kids so it sort of taps into the other she branch had sex twice i know at at least twice possibly no more than twice maybe three times we don't know. But it crosses over with the other types of movies that uh, that Doris Day was making at this time that we weren't aren't talking about at all, where she's like super mom. She's like, a, you know, mother of way too many kids or a mother who, uh, you know, has ambitions outside of just being a mother. But she still manages to be an amazing mom that, you know, like, please don't eat the daisies and, you know, six, you get egg roll, that sort of thing. But in this, it's really odd because, you know, she has a couple of scenes where she like she ends up singing to her children, singing lullabies so they can go to sleep. Like part of the plot is that she can't bring herself to tell her kids that she's their mother because they don't remember her. And it's just, you know, be such a shock. So what ends up happening is the kids are absolutely ignored for the entire movie, except for one or two small scenes. And uh, thinking about this in contrast to Doris Day's other image is super mom. It's it's weird to see how little she cares about the kids. But uh, because we're in sex comedy mode, I guess they don't want those two genres to cross over too much. So I guess they, they downplayed the whole motherhood aspect in this one. So following Move Over Darling, we went to the final Doris Day Rock Hudson film, Send Me No Flowers from 1964. Again, she's already married at the beginning of the film, so we know she's had sex. You know, she doesn't have any kids in this movie. She's married to Rock Hudson, George. Her name is Judy. And uh, they love each other, but uh, Judy is frustrated because George is an incredible hypochondriac, like every little thing that he... He's you got know. a headache, your neuritis, and neuralgia. <laughs> <laughs> He's just constantly in bed, sick with something or other because he thinks he's you know, dying. And, and I think it's actually chest pains he goes to the doctor for. And as he's getting dressed in the other room, he overhears the doctor talking about another patient. But George assumes it's uh, the doctor is talking about him. And he's saying that that patient only has two weeks to live. But George, thinking it's him, is distraught. Doesn't, doesn't know what to do. He, he's only got two weeks to live. How's he going to tell Judy? This is terrible. He managed to tell his neighbor, played by Tony Randall, Arnold, on a train ride. And uh, Arnold just becomes a complete wreck after that. He's so sad that, uh, that George is going to die. And he says he's going to write his eulogy. And he's, you know just starts drinking. So for the entire rest of the movie, Tony Randall is just completely inebriated. And then, um, you know, George 
decides, well, I've got to protect my wife from, uh, you know, these sleazy Lotharios who uh, will just swoop in and uh, comfort these unmarried women. And, uh, you know, they know they're safe to have sex with them because they've been married before. So they're not virgins. So uh, George has a, a, a an acquaintance who does exactly this. I think Winston is his name and, and just, uh, you know, pounces on any available divorcee or widow and uh, has sex with them. Um, so so George is like, oh, I've got to find a good husband for Judy. So he goes to the golf course with Arnold and they're scoping out all these dudes. Um, this is actually one of the gayest movies that we ended up watching. <laughs> I was going to say, finally, we get a romance and it's between George and Arnold. Arnold is clearly so in love with George. I don't know. It's so George... in love. <laughs> George doesn't seem to reciprocate it that much. But on the other hand, George does spend you know, scene after scene at the golf club, like checking out all these dudes saying, no, he's not good enough for my wife. No, he's not. And, and he finally stumbles on this like big studly dude played by uh, Clint Walker, uh, who actually happens to know Judy from college. I think they used to, they used to date in college. He was like, well, this guy, he's got money. He's Big as a mountain. He basically looks like Rock Hudson on steroids. Yeah. It's insane. Clint Walker is so tall. Holy shit. That guy's shoulders could like crush a whole country. Yeah. Anyway, he decides that uh, he's going to push Judy on Bert so that uh, she's got somebody when he's gone in two weeks. He also buys a, uh, a cemetery plot for three so that he and Judy and whatever man that she ends up marrying after he's dead can all be buried in the same cemetery plot. Kinky. <laughs> and most excitingly, we get uh, Paul Lind for the first time as the funeral home or as this cemetery director or whatever, the, the one who's trying to talk George into spending as much as possible on these on the cemetery plot. And it's kind of mind blowing watching that one scene where, where George goes to Mr. Aiken's office and it's just you know, Rock Hudson, who's, you know, the most heterosexual, masculine acting man in Hollywood, but also, you know, openly gay interacting with Paul Lind, who is, you know, the most flamboyant, effeminate version of homosexuality in Hollywood at the time. And the two of them playing off each other is it really in, in spite of the fact that that nothing that happens in that scene or much of this movie is particularly funny. I, I really enjoyed watching that. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, there's a series of misunderstandings and Judy thinks that George is trying to push her off on another man so that George won't feel guilty because he's having an affair with the divorcee and the formula in this movie is very different than the other Rock Hudson, Doris Day movies. And uh, it kind of suffers from that. The biggest problem is that Doris Day has very little to do in this movie. You know, you see her like, you know, replacing George's pills with placebos, with sugar pills, you know, little things like that to show that in spite of how neurotic he is, he's, she still loves him. She actually has a sequence towards the beginning that I guess this whole sequence was choreographed and created by Doris herself just to give her something funny to do in this movie, because otherwise there's very little where she's she goes out to retrieve her groceries from the front stoop. And then her bathrobe gets stuck in the door and the door is locked and she's trying to 
unlock the door and get George's attention. And she ends up breaking the eggs and everything, you know, makes a mess of all her groceries. So she's got this whole slapstick sequence that is all like pure Doris Day. She created the whole thing. That's kind of the only memorable moment in the movie as far as her character goes. What do you think of this one? I like this one. I think this is my favorite of all the ones that we watched, maybe. Really? Because it was actually... But the thing is that you have to watch this thinking of Tony Randall and Rock Hudson as the main couple because it just really improves the experience. <laughs> and Tony Randall, yet again, just totally crushes it as this like best friend of, of George, who the second that he finds out that George is dying, he's like crying every day. He be, develops a drinking problem. Uh, you know, and, and yet he's like there to support his friend every step of the way, no matter how ambiguously gay the activities end up becoming. <laughs> they do end up in bed together at, at one point. Yes, it's kicks, insane. <laughs> kicks George out of the house because she thinks he's having an affair. So he ends up next door at Arnold's house. Arnold's wife and kids are out of town, you know, vacationing at some lakeside resort. And uh, he's having the whole house redone other than the bedroom so it's an excuse for there to not be any place for George to sleep other than in the same bed as Arnold and they joke about like playing footsie you like jokes yeah. oh your your feet are so cold you know it's like it's ridiculous <laughs> it's like <laughs> like it's just the sort of thing where it's like this is this is the movie that comes out of a society that like you know Rock Hudson can't even it's admit that he's gay and, that, and yet they're making movies like this and you're like okay <laughs> Got it, you know, but uh, but just Tony Randall's so charming. I mean, he just had he has great chemistry with Rock in this. They're really playing off of each other in a in a really fun comedic way. I love Tony Randall whenever he gets drunk and yells at like trees or whatever, uh, you know, and just the it's just like a vulnerability to him in this character, especially. I love that his uh, he writes a eulogy for rock and rock totally ignores him and he freaks out at him and he's like i spent days like you know doing this and and writing this for you so i just thought this was really much char more charming and and yeah where the heck's doris day in this entire film she's like barely in it yeah i i just thought there was so little to this movie that it was hard to be particularly entertained by it except for the whole gay subplot that uh, there's really no way around. I guess that's the reason to enjoy this movie, which is, I didn't mention, it's it's directed by Norman Jewison, who did movies that we've watched on Cinema 60 as diverse as The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and In the Heat of the Night. So I don't have much confidence in Jewison's ability to direct comedy, <laughs> and I feel like that's some of the problem with this movie, that... A lot of the gags don't work and he's just sort of desperately trying to find funny things to happen and make situations that aren't necessarily inherently funny, wacky, and that doesn't really come off. You didn't like just the physical comedy of seeing Clint Walker versus Rock Hudson. It's like Battle of the Chins. Yeah, side by side. Just the two of them side by side. It was just so weird. I mean, for me, it was like, this is exactly, you can see why Rock Hudson is so attractive because Clint Walker is such like a hulking animal. Like his features look so exaggerated in comparison to Rock Hudson. It's like somebody like took a clay version of Rock Hudson and just stretched everything horizontally <laughs> and vertically. Yeah, I don't know why they keep setting up Doris Day with these uh, TV Western stars. 
I guess that automatically makes you masculine, extra masculine, because you play a cowboy on TV. And Paul Lin, too, I really enjoyed as a graveyard director. I like he there's like a point where he's like, yeah, yeah, like you got to buy this plot. And I think he's selling these plots. It was a thousand dollars, which in the, uh, you know, the inflation calculator was 10K. So, you know, the price of being buried hasn't really changed. <laughs> but um, he's like, yeah, there's going to be a highway that goes through this in 1980. But we can we can move you your your dead body or we can just put you deeper under the highway. <laughs> it's like, all right. And this is the flimsiest plot, for sure, of any of these movies. Oh, There's, yeah. like, none of it holds together. None of the schemes, none of the, you know, nothing that happens in this movie makes any sense. Like, it's so tenuous why Rock would be trying to find a new husband for Doris. The way that Arnold tries to, um, Judy is furious with George because she thinks he's having an affair and, and Arnold says, well, the way to get her back is to admit that you had an affair, even though he hadn't, and then get her to forgive you. And like, clearly that's the worst advice that anybody could ever give, you know, pretend that you had an affair, tell your wife you had an affair that didn't happen and have her forgive you. And that's how you, you make up. But, but, you know, maybe it was Arnold's plan all along to get the, uh, the two of them to divorce and have uh, have George all to himself. That's the only way that particular plot point makes any sense. Yep, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, flimsy, but the stars are great, so it's easy to watch. Well, now we're getting into bootleg bond territory with the glass bottom boat, 1966. <laughs> Directed by Frank Tashlin, and uh, Doris Day plays Jennifer Nelson, who is a woman that on weekends dresses up as a mermaid in order to spice up her father's glass bottom boat tour business. And uh, on weekdays, she uh, works for an aerospace research company. Like, she works for NASA. (laughs) Uh, And she has a bad run-in with a guy named Bruce Templeton, who's played by Rod Taylor, uh, on a boat. Because he he mistakenly depants her with her mermaid tail uh, in his fishing hook. And they get into a heated argument. And uh, she says some things that you can't take back. And then when she goes to work the next day, she suddenly is horrified to realize that he's actually like the top scientist at the company. Like he's like the man of the company. He owns the company, something like that. And he is in turn actually charmed by her like humility because like there's a whole chase sequence where she's trying to run away from him and he, catches up to her and says, oh, hey, mermaid. And and uh, so he's charmed by her, and he ends up promoting her immediately to work as his full-time assistant, uh, which is about recording the story of his life and, and this, this gravitational control system that he invented, which is called Gizmo, uh, which is like a highly sensitive government equipment thing that the Soviets are just desperate to steal the plans for. And uh, Bruce is also, of course, trying to put the moves on her. And so he takes her back to his place where he uh, shows off his uh, super high-tech kitchen 
that's run by robots and is delightfully mid-century because this is, a, again, a Frank Tashlin flick. So uh, the art direction and the sets in this movie just totally rule across the board. And modern life is terrifying. Technology yeah. is terrifying. That's a Frank Tashlin thing. So the rest of the film is uh, like kind of this cat and mouse game with the Soviets who sent in Dom DeLuise as a bumbling undercover spy. And like the CIA sends in their guy and uh, defense sends in their guys. And, you know, I don't know. It, it basically it culminates in, in this. The government starts to suspect like they they hear that the Soviets are communicating over radio about some stuff that like is tangentially related to Bruce's work and they think oh it's like it must be Jennifer because she's the one who's been hanging out at his house all the time and and one of the things I think even names her or something and it's just because Dom DeLuise screwed up and and you know took something that was like a little like flirtation note written in math or something (laughs) and and he thought that that was like a real formula so he you know sent it back to the soviets and so uh yeah so they they start to the government starts to suspect jennifer of being a soviet spy all the while the actual soviets are getting closer and closer to stealing this plans for gizmo which is like locked in a safe that can only be opened with rod taylor's voice print but because dom DeLuise is like installing a hi-fi system he you know records rod taylor saying the words and so he they get access to it but uh anyhow once once doris day realizes what's been going on she starts to get kind of antagonistic because she sees how little everyone thinks of her and how much they dismiss her intelligence so she just kind of sets up this like honey trap for everyone involved all the government men just to teach them a lesson Uh, Which is funny because she's like basically straight up like, whatever, let the Soviets do whatever the fuck. I don't care. (laughs) And yeah, so, you know, and then it's this whole screwball comedy, you know, it's a big farcical ending. Everything kind of gets, you know, lost and everyone's confused and yada, yada. Um, It's cute. It's fun. And everybody winds up in bed together. Yeah, all these men end up in bed together because she tells them, I'll meet you, you know, like at this room at, at such and such time and, and they think, oh, she's a spy. So they're trying to like get in and out, wink real quick uh, before they arrest her basically because she'll do anything to steal secrets. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I thought this movie was pretty much fun, a bit inconsequential as a spy spoof. The thing that's weird to me is how, how Tashlin managed to get like less racy in his humor as the decades progressed. <laughs> like... Mm. This is kind of racy. There's only one boob-centric. There's only, the, besides the depancing thing in the beginning, which, of course, we don't see anything, you know, even mildly racy, there's one boob-centric sight gag that features Dom DeLuise where he's peering between, like, two showgirls, you know, racks, basically. <laughs> like, that's it. You, you thought this was racy? I thought this was, like, such a tame Tashlin flick. When the movie really picks up steam at the end where there's a lot of uh, bedroom hopping and, uh, you know, every man at this party that Bruce is throwing wants to get in bed with Doris and uh, Paul Lind, who's the security guard at this NASA type place. uh, You know, he's the first one to suspect that Doris Day, Jennifer, is a a Russian spy because she's like calls every day to exercise her dog, whose name is Vladimir. Oh, right. I forgot about the dog. And she calls, you know, because the the dog will jump up and run around every time the phone rings. So she lets the phone ring 
six times and uh, says, okay, I'll, I'll see you later, Vladimir. And uh, so Homer, played by Paul Lind, is like, what's going on? She must be a spy. And then, you know, at the end, it has him like dressing up in drag and going into the, the women's dressing room. And I don't know. I think there's a certain amount of sexiness and stuff that he probably could not have gotten away with in the 50s. Or at least he would have had to have been more subtle about it in the 50s. Not that there's anything subtle I don't know, about man. You watch his movies. The, yeah, there's nothing subtle about that guy. But uh, I actually really enjoyed this movie, which is strange, especially considering it's a, a bootleg bond. But uh, it actually started off really, you know, I, I thought a lot of the humor didn't work. Like um, she's in, in a boat with Rod Taylor, a re remote controlled boat, but the remote breaks and they, you know, they're zooming around this harbor at top speed and, and everybody has to jump off their boats to get out of the way because their boat is going to crash into it like slapstick like that. And, and the worst of all is this whole sequence with Dom DeLuise, who is doing like who Tashlin puts through this whole like Jerry Lewis style yep. routine where Doris Day is holding the ladder for him because he's, he's doing he's quote unquote setting up a stereo for Rod Taylor. And so he ends up slipping and falling in this cake that she's baked for Rod and uh, Bruce. You know, she tries to get it off by bringing a trash can over. And then he ends up like getting his foot stuck in the cake, in the trash can. And everybody, it's a whole mess. And it's it's such a miserable sub sub Jerry Lewis type sequence. I mean, Dom DeLuise, who I actually love, but I think it's his like oversized personality that's so entertaining about him when he's just trying to do slapstick. He's not very entertaining. But as the movie progresses, he gets to do a bit more of what he's good at. But about halfway through the movie, though, when everybody thinks Doris is a spy and, and you know, spy versus spy stuff, when that stuff kicks in, I actually this movie got really entertaining, started to really enjoy it. And I thought that the last third of this movie I'll set it uh, at this government party where everybody's spying on everybody. I thought it was maybe the best part of any of these movies that we watched. It made me laugh a lot. And Paul Lind is, uh, if you don't have Tony Randall in a movie, get Paul Lind because he, he brings a lot of the same energy and is really funny. The cameo at that party made me so happy. <laughs> Should we spoil it? Nobody else will care as much as you do anyway, so you might as well spoil Nobody cares it. <laughs> as much as I do, but Robert Vaughn shows up and they play the man from Uncle theme because everyone's a spy, you know? It's like when it's like when it starts to really like everything revs up and then they just cut to him and he's just standing there. He doesn't say a single line and it was like really funny, like perfect cameo, made me so happy. <laughs> I was so I was like, "Man, what if this was just a man from Uncle episode at the end of the day? That would have really like that would have been a five-star movie for me." <laughs> I think where this movie really turned for me is uh, from, from bad to good is this whole scene where Jennifer is at her father's house, you know, the, the one who runs the glass bottom boat, and she's invited uh, Bruce over. I think they're getting dry after their, uh, their boating mishap, maybe. And, um, and there's this whole dinner table scene that feels completely unscripted, like just totally improvised where Doris Day sings a song. It ends up being the theme song for the movie that we heard earlier and, you know, goes into Que Sera, Sera a bit. And she's just being like Doris Day as Doris Day. And she's being really charming. And everybody is being really sort of natural. And it 
jars a bit because it's so not Frank Cashlin-esque. Like it's as far from a cartoon as you can get. But it's also this, I, I loved having this sort of sequence where Cashlin was just like, oh, let's let's have our stars have some fun. Let's have Doris Day have some fun and just do her thing for a while. I enjoyed that. And then after that, the, you know, the plot starts to pick up and, you know, the misunderstandings sort of gather to a head. So from that sequence on, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I mean, I enjoyed it from that atomic kitchen and <laughs> that there's like this little cleaning robot that kind of looks like K9 from Doctor Who that just comes out and like wants to clean everything on the ground, no matter if it's alive or dead. <laughs> and steals Doris Day's shoe and she has a fight with it. Yeah, that's perfect comedy. Just the sets in here. I mean, I love like the whole crazy safe that he has to use. And plus, honestly, the gizmo thing is, I mean, it's such a stupid gag, but like they just like have somebody on a string and you can like see the wire and like, but they're, they're like, when you're, when you're inside, there's no gravity. And that's like what this, you know, top secret thing can do. And so it's just funny. Like whenever, like there's a scene where like, Doris Day walks into the wrong door and she ends up inside of Gizmo and is just like floating there. I don't know. It's like kind of stupid humor, but it's still like that's my kind of stupid humor. Yeah, I had low expectations for this movie and uh, it ended up being possibly my favorite stupid bootleg Bond movie that we've watched. Tashlin is so hit and miss for me. Like, I, I mean, I always visually he's always doing something interesting, but like. When his comedies are funny, they're, like, hilarious. And other times I, I'm just like, why would you ever make the Geisha Boy? <laughs> well, Doris Day's next movie after this was uh, Caprice, also directed by Frank Tashlin. And I have seen that, and it's terrible. <laughs> He's kind of a one-up, one-down kind of director, I think, because he really does have some brilliant movies, but uh, a lot of them are not. Finally, our last movie for this episode was uh, Where Were You When the Lights Went Out? From 1968. Directed by High... Averback, who you might remember as the director of I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, which uh, gives you an idea of how unskilled the comedy <laughs> in this movie is. Have you ever noticed how every single episode where we, we span from the beginning of the 60s to the end of the 60s, we always end up throwing this really terrible movie on the end of the episode? The last movie we talk about in most episodes is just was really terrible end of the 60s movie and it has completely to do with the fact that movies just started to suck at the end of the 60s I guess but this movie is about Doris Day basically playing herself except as a stage actor you know she's starring in a play called The Constant Virgin but um which is uh capitalizing on the image of Margaret, the, the character that she's playing and how she's very much like Doris Day. But uh, Margaret is considering retiring and she wants to play, you know, some, she wants to get out of her typecast role at least once before she retires, but she's finding it difficult. And one day she's 
being interviewed by this magazine and you know, it's talking about her and her relationship with her husband, who's played by Patrick O'Neill. You know, they they're very supportive of each other. He's a famous architect. They're both sort of famous and rich in their own right, but they also like have more of a professional relationship in a way. Good companions for each other, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of love there. And also this guy, Patrick O'Neill, I don't even know who he is. He's such a dullard. There's nothing interesting about this guy. But when Margaret leaves this interview in her house, she leaves Peter, her husband there, with the the sexy journalist who was interviewing her. And uh, they hook up, basically, uh, while she's out you know, getting ready to, to perform her play. Uh, meanwhile, in another part of Manhattan, Robert Morse, playing Waldo Zane, is the treasurer at this high finance company who has this elaborate plan to steal a bunch of money. And so we get to watch this whole scheme where he ends up, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't need to get into it. But anyway, he ends up leaving the building at the end of the night with a big case full of, you know, millions of dollars. So while that's happening and while Peter's in bed with the journalist and while Margaret is about to go on for another performance of The Constant Virgin, all the lights go out in New York City. No power. So Margaret you know, goes home because there's nothing better to do. Her husband doesn't realize that the power's gone out because he's in a darkened apartment with this sexy woman. So... Margaret comes back and finds them in bed together. And of course, he's like, nothing happened, nothing happened. And she is all upset and goes off to their house in Connecticut, uh, drives off there and takes a couple sleeping or takes um, puts a bunch of sleeping drops in a glass of water to uh, just you know relax herself and go to sleep and think about what's happening with her and her husband in the morning. And at the same time, Robert Morse is uh, on the way out of town with his briefcase full of money. And uh, he switches cars to so that he can't be tracked and, and buys this clunker of a car. And uh, it breaks down right outside of this Connecticut house where Margaret is. And uh, he comes in and wants to use the phone, but she's unconscious on her couch bed. He doesn't even see her there, I guess. And he's uh, you know trying to get through to an, a mechanic on the phone. And uh, there's a glass of water there, which she'd put the sleeping drops in. And he drinks that. And, you know, without realizing uh, what's happening, he, he gets really sleepy and he ends up in the same bed with Margaret. They don't realize that each other are in the bed, but they are asleep together in the same bed when Margaret's husband comes to this house, finds them in bed together. And, you know, everything gets uh, gets really wacky from there. Uh, the money gets lost and Margaret's Broadway producer who's trying to trick her into signing an, a new contract and thinks that she, he can keep her from retiring by breaking up her marriage with Peter shows up. Terry Thomas plays that role with a wild Polish accent. Uh, this movie is based on a, a French play, a French sex farce. And plot wise, it's really obvious. Like everything that happens is exactly what you'd see in a French sex farce. But it's directed as if it's like a well sort of like a, a a rock hudson doris day movie where it's you know you're you're supposed to like get to know the characters and and enjoy their interaction with with each other but you don't have any kind of plot to support that so you've got this really slow-paced 
French sex farce that might have been funny if it like had some had some pace to it, had some snap, like if things were just going wild all the time and it, it was, you know, just a lot of craziness. Like there's there's material for a fairly funny movie here, but it's just totally bombs. Like I really like Robert Morse, but he can't seem to eke any comedy out of Waldo Zane. Uh, Doris Day only made one more movie after this uh, with Six You Get Egg Roll. And it, it, this movie is kind of a a sad way to have to end this episode uh, talking about her career in the 60s. But as I said before, that seems to happen with every episode that we do. The end of career 1968-69 movie that we inevitably talk about at the end of every episode is a bomb. Yeah, this was terrible. <laughs> This was really bad, and I was kind of bummed because I really like Robert Morris, and uh, I don't know what's happening here. Like, they have him play it, like, super straight with no comedy for the most part. And plus, that scene with them being, like, on barbiturates is insane. <laughs> it's, like, basically rivals the scene from Wolf of Wall Street. Like, like what did she take? Like, it had to be, like, second all, right? But there were drops and uh, pills, but, like, the, the they get so drunk, like, high it's like kind of creepy <laughs> yeah I, it doesn't say what they took but they're completely passed out but they you know if somebody wakes them they can you know manage a, a few words like one of the big comedy gags is uh peter keeps trying to wake up margaret and she says oh peter you're here and like that that happens 16 times she gets woken out of her her stupor and and says that line and goes back to sleep it like creeped me out it, like <laughs> the whole scene really creeped me out like none of it felt funny and like i'm not a, i'm not too good for a drug gag but like it was just like i don't know man it's it was really weird and plus there's just again there's this strain of like really lame conservative humor in this where you know there's that scene where like uh robert morris meets a hippie in westchester who's going to a love-in He's like, hey, man, what are you protesting? He's like, I don't know. We'll find something. You're like, all right, whatever. You know, it's like just kind of bizarre. And then the whole thing about how it's just, you know, about, again, like how dare she, uh, you know, have an affair while he's like openly banging any woman that he can find. And, you know, I, don't, I just am I meant to care about this marriage? Like even on a comedy level, it's just like there's nothing fun here it was just really weird and the fact that this whole you know that that they're using this like uh blackout in the city that was seemed also inconsequential like it's just no real re i mean it like kind of is a really extremely convoluted way to get all these these three characters together but um it kind of opens with a like you know record scratch i bet you're wondering how i got here kind of a line and and it's just never you're like no i i wasn't actually <laughs> I, I just I actually don't really care it's like it sounds like you're in a miserable marriage and uh you know and and you guys have drug problems and uh fine you know i didn't hate it you know i it was just so bland and how to how to succeed in business by giving up pretty much yeah yeah, Robert Morse has very similar narration, but it works in that movie and does not at all in this one. Yeah, it's not a hateable movie. It's just bland and incompetently made and kind of a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, the uh, one thing I will say for this is that, again, great interior design. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's fun colors. There's fun outfits for Doris. It feels very like mid-century, but boy, it it, it started off kind of good. I kind of like this thing with her, you know, being the constant virgin and then walking in on her husband. And, and I was curious to see how this was going to like these two stories were going to convene. And then the second they did, I was like, Ugh, mm. not like that, you know, <laughs> but whatever, whatever. It's yeah. a movie and we watched it. Yeah. I mean, part of the plot is that she's getting older and she's definitely too old at, at this point to be playing these, uh, you know, young virginal working girls. And this movie is smart enough to try and address that, but it doesn't address it in any interesting way. But yeah, basically, shortly, she made one other movie, but shortly after she just, um, you know, became exclusively a TV star. Uh, wasn't didn't make any movies anymore. And so her movie career ended at the end of the 60s. And the time was right, unless she could have totally reinvented herself, which I guess she did as a TV star. But uh, she definitely couldn't continue to, to keep making the types of movies that, that she'd been making throughout the 60s. I think you should go back to the thing you were saying about sex in the 60s, the way that they treat sex. Sexual liberation. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we've got uh, Hollywood trying to deal with sexual liberation in the 60s and using uh, Doris Day as their figurehead. This liberated woman who, for, in most of these movies, is, is a working woman, you know, independent, is making it on her own, but you know, she's a woman. So, you know, at some point, she's got to fall in love and settle down. And uh, it's sort of trying to, you know, navigate between that really old fashioned idea that, of course, this woman can't keep working her whole life. At some point, she's got to settle down with a man and trying to also reconcile that with this new idea of the modern woman who, you know, is on the pill, sleeps around, sleeps with whoever she wants to, has now has as much freedom as a man to do whatever she wants to do sexually and trying to squeeze both of those ideas into these movies seems to be the, you know, what, what all of these movies are about trying to have it both ways in the funnier, more successful movies that we talked about. They actually, you know, play it as a joke. And, and that joke is kind of funny that they go through this elaborate process to make sure that she isn't having sex outside of marriage, but uh, in the less successful, the less funny movies that we watched, it's a drag. To keep seeing her do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I mean, do you think that she actually works? Does she embody this this old meets new? I'm I'm on the fence about it. I think that there is just something a little bit too stodgy about her overall to really get across anything that feels modern in that way. But I mean, in comparison to Cary Grant, she feels modern, but <laughs> Like on her own, I don't know. I'm I'm mixed. Like I I do think that she is very charming. Um, I can see why she was the face of like a more conservative version of sexual liberation. Like she could be the good girl and and dabble a little bit in the bad. But like they, I also feel like she gets very neutered in most of these movies sexually. She never really feels like an actual bombshell uh in any sort of way like she's never treated that way she's always sort of talked down to or presented as a little bit asexual it, which is kind of a bummer because like i think that 
it's always interesting when you're being shown a, a version of sexiness that isn't sex pot. Yeah, I mean, I think she's a safe woman for Hollywood to have play that figure. Here's this conservative woman who you know actually does have sexual feelings and is considering having a one night stand. It's why she works with Rock Hudson so well, I think. Like, here's this homosexual man who's playing like the ultimate heterosexual Lothario. And it's the fun of watching two stars whose screen images contrast with their real life images and, and playing that for comedy. That's part of why Pillow Talk works so well. But that whole idea gets a little tired the more it's repeated. Well, it was certainly interesting to watch all of these in a row. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, maybe not one of my favorite episodes, but uh, I, I enjoyed it. I like her. I, I definitely have, I feel like I have more of a respect for old Doris Day than I, I really ever did, uh, especially as a comedian. I, that's another thing I appreciate about her, even though it's not fully my sense of humor. Um, she's never afraid to go for a slapstick joke and, and do physical comedy. And, you know, she still looks cute while she does it. She's also, you know, there, there's definitely times where she is not not just looking. I, you know, there's like the there is the the Hollywood version of like messed up where it's just like a woman in full makeup and perfect hair. But like one hair is out of place and she has like some like coal like, you know, on her face or something. It's like the least dirty you've ever seen anyone in your life. But like I feel like she actually does go for it. Uh, more than than that and and uh, she kind of pushes that boundary for for the comedy and understands physical comedy and so that in in that regard uh, I do appreciate Doris Day and it also I mean she seems like she was an all-around nice person she certainly never abandoned rock in the end which it was as appreciated and and noted so there's something really appealing about her she's so easy to watch on the screen I don't yeah I wouldn't consider her a favorite even though Pillow Talk is a favorite movie of mine. That movie is really why I wanted to do this whole episode. It's like, oh, let's see how much I really do like Doris Day. And uh, I think in the end, it's, you know, I, I feel the same way you do. She's not afraid to get a little mussed up. She goes for it with the comedy. She is likable. She doesn't end up having a lot of the funniest moments in these movies. It's often the supporting characters who do get the most laughs and rock hudson is always you know i think you know he seems like such a stiff but his comedy chops are really pretty incredible i don't know i don't feel much differently about doris now than i did before we watched all these movies but despite the fact that these movies aren't great i have no negative feelings about her so you're saying that you've lost your doris day virginity officially yes we flirted with her we dated her but we never went all in. We never delved into her sexuality the way we did with these movies. Delved long and hard. Go, 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 You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.